Very good. Praise the Lord. It's been a tremendous joy for me to be here this week and a blessing. I just again thank you, each of you, for your prayers and for your uh, contribution to the Bible school this week. Because each of you contribute. We contribute, you contribute through your words of encouragement, your prayers, and just many different ways. So I thank you for your prayers and contribution. I am planning to travel home this afternoon, so I won't be here for your um, presentation tomorrow. And I regret that. I'm sure it'll be a blessing and it'll be beautiful. But I will pray for you. I promise to do that. I'll pray that God will bless your program there and make it a blessing to those who are here. I'm a little concerned as I think about uh, sharing here this morning. As you know, we, uh, I think we're about halfway, not even quite, through chapter 3. And we're not going to, I told you at the beginning, we wouldn't make it clear through First Peter. That's okay. I was thinking about this sharing this morning, and I, I'm a little concerned. I was thinking, remembering about what happens sometimes at home with my youngest son. He sits to the left of me at the table when we eat, and he's two and a half years old. And sometimes he, he's just not making the progress he should be. And so we're, we, we see this is happening, and we reach over there and take his spoon and, and uh, give him a bite of food. And we do that, and sometimes we look back over a few moments later, and he's sitting there like this. And he can barely chew. So then I realize, well, maybe, maybe I gave him too big of a bite. And so I don't want to do that to you this morning. You've heard plenty of information this week, and our problem is not, our problem is not having more information, that's for sure. But somehow being motivated with the, invitation, uh, the information we get to apply it to our lives and live it out. I think here at the beginning we'll just make a few comments, uh, closing up things from yesterday. We were talking about how we are called unto God's eternal glory through a Christ-like conversation. The final point of that was in chapter 3, 8 through 13. Let's just read that, make a few comments, and then we'll try to go into today's teaching. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Okay, so here he had, uh, he, had addressed, he had addressed God's children as strangers and pilgrims, and then direction given as subjects in relation to civil governments and our testimony in our communities. Then we talked about servants. Uh, then we tried to talk about some direction there for the wives and then for the husbands. And now here in verse 8, he kind of, directs this thought. He's still carrying through the, the teaching, the instruction, the call here to a life of Christ-likeness, a Christ-like conversation, Christ-like way of life, living after the example of Jesus. And so this is addressed to everyone. Verse 8 of First Peter 3, finally. So he's saying finally. He's coming to bring this together. Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days. Now here's some summary verses here. Notice these especially. We're talking about a a way of life that is Christ-like, that is, that is holy, that is godly. For he that will love life and see good days. Well, I think we all would do that. We all would love life and see good days. It says, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? In this section I had uh, subtitled as, as followers of that which is good. And so here I just want to make a few comments. 
it says in verse 8 that we should be, all be of one mind. That's an interesting picture. You know, we hear people saying this, and that, there, are, there are times where we leave uh, the fellowship that we're in and look for other place to fellowship and worship God. I understand that. But the command here is that we would all be of one mind. We hear people say, well, I'm looking for a place where we're like-minded. Well, I just want to encourage you young people to think about that. Unity, and power, uh, unity is powerful and beautiful. It's where the Lord commands the blessing. But we need to remember the command here is not to try to find the place where you're all like-minded. The, the command is put yourself under one another, learn from each other, and come together till you are one-minded or like-minded. It's a, it's a direction. <clears throat> but have compassion one of another. There's some direction given that was, that was spoken to in the first message this morning. Very well done. Very beautifully. Um, but just, it says, have compassion one of another. That's one word in the Greek. It's, a, it's a interesting that they needed five English words there to translate that Greek word. Have compassion one of another. That's one word in the Greek. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. These are simply attitudes and postures of heart. These are uh, manners. These are manners and attitudes as we relate to each other that will be beautiful and a blessing in our local congregations. And I would just say, basically we can summarize this. Show caring, just show some caring interest in the lives of those people around you. Other brothers and sisters in the congregation. Uh, try to be sensitive to needs. Show a caring interest. You are on the same team. You be pitiful and courteous instead of, and love as brethren, instead of uh, pointing out and criticizing and dividing, let's pull together, build one another up, establish and, and encourage one another in the faith. There's many little ways to do that, but look for opportunities to do that in your local congregation. Uh, several times this week, I received text, text messages from young men at home that are saying they're praying for me, thinking of me, and praying for me this week. That's a blessing. Let's show that support and build one another up. You know, if someone loses, we're on the same team. If someone loses, we all lose to some measure. But this competitive attitude that puts me up and puts others down is a very dangerous thing. Summarizing here, Galatians 6, 2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens. That's a beautiful picture. So there's just the simple burdens and cares that, of life that we all experience, some more than others. Some have heavier burdens. But the picture is that there's burdens here, and we all come under these burdens and bear them together. And it says in Galatians 6, 2, that this is actually the fulfillment of the law of Christ. If we bear one another's burdens. It goes on here, don't return evil for evil in verse 9. Railing for railing, that's slander. Now this isn't easy. It's hard to speak well of people that have said things about you that aren't kind, isn't it? That's hard. It's hard to, to not return evil for evil. That's not a natural thing. People hurt you. Learn to bless them and speak well of them, even if they hurt you. Be careful with our speech. Verse 10 is a, we all would love life and see good days. This is simple. These are simple promises. We all know them. This is nothing new this morning. But it's just that simple. If we would love life and see good days, let us refrain our tongue from evil and our lips that they seek, speak no guile. Be careful what you say. And we already heard, learned, uh, someone has said that slander is what we say about people when they aren't listening that we would never tell them to their face. Slander is what I say about people when they're not around. I would never say it in front of them. Flattery is what I tell people to their face, but I would never say it when they're not around. Let's learn to be careful in our speech and build one another up, as we've already heard. Learn to see the good qualities in other people and bless them. Alexander White had a woman in his congregation that had a tremendous gift to do this. She did it so beautifully. And one day he was speaking to her about another uh, person from the congregation. And she just kept saying kind things about or nice things about the individual. And finally, Alexander White said, he said, lady, 
you are so kind. You have a good word for everyone. You probably even have a good word for the devil. And she said, well, pastor, he sure is industrious. (laughs) Irenaeus, one of the early Christians, wrote this. Always speaking well of the deserving, but never ill of the undeserving, we shall attain to the glory and kingdom of God. Always speaking well of the deserving, but never ill of the undeserving, we shall attain to the glory and kingdom of God. That's the way there. Okay, verse 11 kind of summarizes that. Also, this whole passage just eschew evil. Uh, put evil away and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And then we see the beautiful promises here in verse 12 and 13. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and he hears their prayers. So here we are, and here we are struggling through life. We all are struggling. We all have struggles and challenges in life. And we're trying to pass through this race, pass through this life. And if this is the posture of heart, if, we, if the Christ-likeness is the pursuit of our life, And that is the spirit of our heart and humility and brokenness. God's face is on us and he's pouring in that grace like we heard last night. If this is not our our manner of life, if this is not the manner of life, it says the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. The face of God will be against that individual who is not pursuing this life. So there we have that. And we'll switch over here now to... Today's session, called unto God's eternal glory, today we want to look at through suffering and grace, called unto God's eternal glory through suffering and grace. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind this morning when you think of suffering, it's, it's not a very positive word, but what goes to your mind when you think of suffering? We tend to have a very negative view about suffering. We tend to avoid it at all costs. We shy away from it, and we are actually tempted to compromise in order to avoid it. That's real life. So we are tempted to take the easy road many times in life, the the path of least resistance. We face those decisions in life, and we say we're faced here with a decision, and well, you know, this this, this way here will cost me less resistance. And we just, that, if we even stop in purpose... That's if we stop and make a decision. If we don't stop and make a decision and we just aimlessly go through life without definite and clear purpose, then we will take the path of least resistance. Suffering. You know, the culture that we live live in is grooming us. I said us, me included. The culture we live in is grooming us with ease and pleasure and all the emphasis of my own rights. How many of you read the book, have we no rights? Mabel Williamson, maybe I think, wrote it. It's a good book to read. I don't know where you get it, but have we no rights? It's a, it's a powerful book. But we are so used to having our own rights that we fight for our rights instead of embracing suffering. But what does the Bible have to say about suffering? Just briefly here, we want to do a little study. So keep your page turned here in 1 Peter, but let's look at a few other references just to try to get a little bit of a bigger picture of God's heart and perspective on suffering. First turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. You know, I forgot to bring my water bottle. Uh, It's right there behind. If you'd bring that up, that'd be a blessing. God's heart and perspective of suffering. Malachi chapter 3 here. We'll read. Thank you so much. Okay, verse 1. Malachi Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament there, right in front of Matthew. Okay, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Who's that? Who's that speaking of? Thank you. John the Baptist. And then it says, And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly appear. Come to his temple. And I want to say, Brother Larry's sitting there. I'm sure this may have a future connotation in this 
text as well, but I'm going to use it for the, for the church age or the church time. Okay. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And, and John the Baptist said that he preached that the one that would come, whose shoes latched, he was not worthy to unloose. He would baptize us with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Interesting picture. <clears throat> Verse 3, speaking, I believe, of the Lord here. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Now we would all say here this morning, we want more purity. I want more purity in my life. I want to be purified. I think that's the heart of, of the true child of God. We see it in, uh, expressed in 1 John, I think, chapter 3. But even as he is pure, we want to be pure like that. And that heart, that desire for, for growth and more purity and transparency in our life. We want that. I hope you want that. We want to be purged. We want to offer an offering to the Lord of, in righteousness that pleases and honors him. Well, it says this is what would happen. He shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of gold. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That's not always pleasant. And that experience is a challenge. And we haven't, I don't believe we have suffered for the faith of Jesus Christ, like we, the possibility and potential of what we may encounter, even our generation, young people. And so we'd like to look at this subject. I think it's important that we, uh, Dean Taylor preached, used to preach a message called the theology of martyrdom. And just living our life in the context of embracing the cross. And that is the best preparation we can have for harder times or Times of suffering or persecution is to, is to live our life that way. But we want to be purified. We want to be purged. We want to offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. And the promise is here that the Lord would do that. He would do that in his children. He would do that to the sons of Levi. He would do that in our lives. He would baptize us with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Matthew five ten through 12 uh, Brother John referenced these. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye. And this is uh, supremely blessed. Are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That's a pretty positive view. So the Bible takes a pretty positive view of suffering, wouldn't you say? They say, this is, this is a good thing. If it happens to you for the testimony of Jesus Christ, rejoice. You're supremely favored and blessed. Okay, the Apostle Paul, let's look briefly at his perspective of suffering. We know that he was converted there on the, on the road to Damascus. He was converted there. There was a bright light that shone, and he was knocked to the ground. And as he lay there in, in blindness, evidently, he heard a voice from heaven saying, Why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks, Paul. And so Paul spoke out there, and God told him, uh, the Lord told him what to do. And so he sent Ananias to him. And this is what the Lord told Ananias. Ananias was struggling. He's saying, I've heard about this man. He, he, he was coming to Damascus to persecute the Christians. I heard about this man. And he was hesitating to go. And this is what the Lord told Ananias. But the Lord said unto him, Ananias, go thy way. For he, for he Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel... And then the Lord said this, 
It's in red words in my Bible. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, how would you like that calling in life? How would you and I feel if the Lord says, I've called you. This is a chosen vessel of mine. And I'm going to, he's, I'm going to, to show him and use him as a, as a powerful testimony of suffering for my name's sake. That doesn't sound too exciting, does it? But that was the call there on Paul's life. And he took that serious. He was very serious about it, his, his walk with the Lord. Let me read these verses to you. You don't need to turn there. We're just talking about Paul's perspective of suffering, a biblical perspective of suffering. We know that in Philippians 3, we have a piece of Paul, the, the Apostle Paul's autobiography there. And we also have an insight into his tremendous passion in life. Let me read it. But what things were gained to me, those I accounted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. And then he says, that I may know him. I, this is the passion and pursuit of his life was to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Have you ever had a tremendous desire? He said, I would desire to be identified with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I just have this passion to be identified with Jesus in this way. The theology of martyrdom. But he did. He had this passion. It characterized his life. And then it says, being made conformable unto his death. That was also his passion. But he rejoiced in suffering. Tremendously. It's a tremendous challenge to me. His life is just, every one of the apostles, but his life is a tremendous challenge. In Colossians 1 verse 24 The Apostle Paul said this. I'll read the verse to you. You'll recognize it. He's writing there to the church at Colossae, and he says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. And what he's saying there, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you people and for the church. And I fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. And he's not saying that the the sufferings of Christ, the mediatorial sufferings of the Lord Jesus were not sufficient. That's not what he's saying. He's not adding to that one bit. The picture is there that he's saying, I stepped up and took my turn and took my place to suffer for the church, his body. I stepped up in line and took my place. To do it for the church. There's nothing lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And Paul's not doing it for mediatorial benefits or blessings. But he's just saying that I am, uh, I've stepped up to fill up that which is behind of the affliction of Christ in my flesh for his church's sake. I stepped up and I'm here and I'm taking my turn. That's a challenge. God's still looking for volunteers. 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul, again, a a little snapshot of autobiography where he talks about his life and his suffering. It says, five times he received 40 stripes minus one. That's 195 times he was beaten in a very merciless way. Three, thrice was he beaten with rods. Once was he stoned, and I, 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 I don't know who shared this, but I heard it once, and I, I think of it every time if I think of him, as I think of him being stoned. You can, see him, he, you can see him laying on the ground, and these people are throwing stones, and the stones are piling up, and finally they're sure he's dead, and they all leave. After a while, one of the stones <laughs> moves, and pretty soon he gets up, and he goes back into the city. He suffered shipwreck, a night and day in the deep. 
Now, what did he say about this whole list of suffering? We would have a tendency to want self-pity or recognition or something for all our suffering. What did he say about all this suffering? What did he call it? Mickey read it the other night. What did he call all that suffering? A light affliction. (laughs) That was... Leonard Leonard Ravenhill says, well, that must have been a headache to the devil. The devil did all this to him. Stoned him and beat him and and shipwrecked in a night and a day in the deep. And the apostle Paul's rejoicing. And he says, this was a light affliction. That's quite a view of suffering. Isn't that glory and victory over suffering? A headache to the devil. No matter what he throws at you, you just sing and rejoice and praise God. I can suffer for Jesus. Paul was not captivated with the temporal. We are too fascinated. I said we. But we are too easily fascinated and captivated by the things that are temporal. He wasn't. He was living for that which is to come. I mean, he was living for now, but... This world was not his home. Okay, so we want to try to... Let's go to 1 Peter. We're looking at suffering and grace. We're called to God's eternal glory. That's what we're called to. This is a call of the eternal God. The everlasting Father to us. He's he's called us to his eternal glory. And that comes through suffering and grace. Peter here is concerned. He wrote, this book was, we, we mentioned it briefly in the introduction. This book was written to people who were suffering and who were going to suffer more. This book has a lot to say about suffering. It nowhere apologizes to these people saying, I am so sorry that you have to suffer. I am so sorry that it's so hard for you. No. He says, this is a privilege. There's glory following. There's glory now and there's glory coming. So he's concerned that these Christians would have this, this, be able to enter into this suffering and pass through this suffering with a, with the view of glory. And and over and over in, in this little book, you have suffering and glory together. Suffering and glory. Nowhere's the pity and the, the, you poor people, it's suffering and glory. It's a blessing. Now, it's, what we see in this whole issue of suffering in First Peter is what he was concerned about is that your suffering is happening for righteousness sake or because of well-doing and not for evil-doing. You see, suffering can be because of my own foolishness. Now, this is not a good example. I'll acknowledge that. But it is a little limited example from my own life. And it's not really suffering. When I was a young person, 15, 17 years old in that age, we had this crazy idea. At least my dad thought it was. But he did let us do it. He never stopped us. And that was we could go into old barns at night in old silos and we could catch pigeons alive. And we, could, we had a big pen, and we could catch these pigeons alive, and then we'd pile them up, and then we had people that would pay us $3 or $3.50 a piece. And if you get 500 pigeons, that's pretty good money for a 15-year-old. I mean, I'm not that old, but that, 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 was, that was more money that, back then than it is today. So we went around through these old barns at night in flashlights and big fishing nets, and we caught a lot of pigeons. But one night, up in an old barn, 15 feet up, All I had is a flashlight. I stepped on a board, and it wasn't nailed or anything, and I fell 15 feet on my right knee. I still face the consequences of that today. That was a stupid decision. I shouldn't have been climbing around in an old barn at night with a flashlight. But that's a simple illustration. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. There is reaping there. There's loss. There's loss of testimony. There's loss of power. There's loss of glory. There's broken relationships. And Peter's concern in in this first passage, and clear through this passage, we're looking, I'm sorry, 
We're looking at uh, verses, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Suffering for well-doing. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 22. And I'm not going to read these. We're just going to speak about them. You, maybe you could read them later. But you can write these, uh, my points down if you want to, or subtitles. We're talking about suffering for well-doing. His concern was that they were, their suffering would be for well-doing. You see it in verse 14. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, extremely blessed, and be not afraid of their terror. You see it again in verse 16. Having a good conscience. Make sure your conscience is good and clear, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, it's not true. Verse 17. For it is better if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evildoing. So he's concerned that this suffering would be done for Christ and because of their godliness, not because of their foolishness, not because of their, their, uh, their fleshliness or sinfulness or evil, he calls it, or their unchristlikeness. A good conscience. He was concerned about that. Paul said in Acts 24.16, when the apostle Paul stood in front of Felix there, and was giving testimony for his faith, he said this to Felix, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. He told Felix that. That is one of the exercises of my life. I make that, that's very important to me. That's an exercise I have in my life, that my conscience is void of offense towards God and towards men. That's how we are to live. So his concern is here, you know, our own pride, my pride, my stubbornness can bring suffering into my own life. And it's his heart that we don't face, the suffering we encounter is not because of that. Okay, the second we want to look at. So Peter's concerned about that. Now we're looking at 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. And here again, we're not going to read this, but the title I have for this section is Equipped for Suffering. So he's concerned that they're suffering for righteousness' sake, and Peter is concerned that these people would be equipped for suffering, that they would understand there are some tools available to them and there are some things that are important to them as they face this suffering. And he says it here, we'll read verses 1 and 2. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. There are multiple other things we could look at later throughout this passage, these 11 verses, that would equip us for suffering. But we want to mention these two verses. It gives us a summary, I believe. So the first thing he mentions is the example of Christ in suffering. And this example, is, this example is mentioned clear through this epistle. Over and over as he writes about suffering, he reminds them that Christ is our example. Again, Jesus didn't just come and call us to a life of holiness. He didn't just come and call us and say, you'll face some suffering. But he showed us how to suffer. And that had to be encouraging to those people. We have Christ's example. Someone has said that Christianity is the only religion that has at its center the humiliation of its God. Christianity is the only religion that has at its center the humiliation of its God. Truly, Christ suffered. What an example. It says here, arm yourselves with the same mind. The word arm means to equip. Prepare for battle. Prepare for battle. Arm yourself. It's not a passive word. It's not a, it's not a, uh, just a, I don't know, I don't care word. It's definite, purposeful word. Arm yourself. Equip yourself for battle. We say that the battle is in the mind. 
The battle is in the mind. And he says here, equip yourselves with the same mind that Christ had. And we heard about that this morning beautifully from Philippians 2. The mind of Christ. Equip yourself with that mind. Now it says in Philippians 4, Paul again writing here, and he says this, speaking about his condition. He says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. So Paul said, I've learned in whatsoever state therewith I am in to be content. So there's some secret for us in that little phrase about the Apostle Paul. And the one thing it tells us that Paul didn't just get fuzzy feelings and have this glory, you know, this good feelings about being where he was at. He says, I have learned. And if the Apostle Paul could learn to be content in whatever state he was in, when he's swimming out on the ocean because of a shipwreck, or he's just been beaten 40 stripes minus one, and he's sitting there, and it probably didn't feel too good physically. If he could learn to be content, maybe you and I could. But the point here is, the Apostle Paul had to learn to be content in whatever state he was in. We tend to look at some of these men, and we tend to have this idea of them, that they were just supermen. No. They were men like you and I, who had surrendered and submitted themselves to a super God, and were filled with His grace. He learned to be content. We can too. And as I think of this, arm yourselves with the same mind. I can't help but think that maybe Peter, while he's dictating this epistle to Silvanus, is sitting there, and he's remembering a night many years before when he was in Gethsemane with Jesus. Arm yourself. Equip yourself with the mind of Christ. To encounter and face suffering. And there he is in Gethsemane with Jesus. And he sees the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his humanity, yes. And he sees that Lord get on his knees in Gethsemane and begin to pray. And this is what Jesus said. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you, Father. Take away this cup from me. Take this cup away from me, Father. All things are possible to you. Peter observed that. And sometime he fell asleep. We don't know when he fell asleep and when he through the process of it all. But that was the prayers that began. It says Jesus began to be sore amazed and very heavy. He knew what was coming. He was right up against the cross. And he knew it was right there. He was facing it. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. And here Jesus is in Gethsemane equipping equipping himself for the cross. And it was, he, that was the prayer that first comes out. All things are possible. Take this cup away from me. But that's not where it stopped. That was the beginning of the prayer. That's not where it ended. And eventually Luke says that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now I want to tell you just a little story. I don't know that I should interject it here, but it just came to mind. Leonard Ravenhill said this. He said, the best thing my daddy ever did, ever did for me, one of the best things that my daddy ever did for me, when I was 14 years old, he took me to a, a whole night of prayer. And he said, I saw men get on their knees, and it was cooled in this room, and they begin to pray. And they begin to pray to God for the lost, for their own life, and then for the lost. 
And he said, pretty soon, these men took their coats off. And pretty soon, they were sweating in prayer, in supplication. Have you ever sweated in prayer? Equip yourself for suffering. Jesus sweat, didn't he? He didn't just sweat, drops of sweat, but great drops of blood on the ground. He was equipping himself, preparing himself. And so the prayer that went, Father, take this cup away from me. You're able to do it. Ends by saying, nevertheless, not what I will but what thou wilt. And the battle was won in the garden. I believe that. The battle was won there. He was equipped. He was prepared in the garden. He got up, and he woke those disciples up, and he said, let's go. Rise up. The one who betrays me is here, and he was ready. He was ready to embrace the cross and to die. I like that hymn, Go to Dark Gethsemane. First verse says, Go to Dark Gethsemane, ye that feel the tempter's power. Your Redeemer's conflict see. Watch with him one bitter hour. Turn not from his griefs away. Learn of Jesus Christ to pray. That's beautiful. Arm yourself with that mind. Prepare yourself. Suffering will hurt. It's painful. And I don't know that much of suffering for Christ. I know very little. So this is, I'm trying to preach to you from the scriptures. But I am convinced that we, probably in our generation, will have the opportunity. It will hurt. It does hurt. But it won't destroy you if you have embraced the cross. The cross is there for us to die. And yes, it hurts, but it won't destroy us. It is the only way to the resurrection. It says in this passage, we see it in verse 2, that suffering has a purifying effect. He's reminding them, you know, this has a purifying effect. And when Peter wrote this, he could write from experience. He could write from experience. We see in the book of Acts that he, he was beaten there, and they went on their way rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. He was stuck in prison between those soldiers. We don't know when all he suffered, but he could write from experience. And he's telling these people, it has a purifying effect. It's okay. Verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. It will make us, suffering will make us more aware of those eternal realities. Suffering will do that to us. It will purify us. It will cause the things of earth to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It, suffering will cause us to take a firmer hold, reaching for the eternal, take a stronger hold, and release our grasp on the things that are temporal. Suffering will do that. It'll make us reach forward with a stronger, firmer hold and release those things down here. That's what it'll do. Okay, let's go to the next part. First uh, Peter 4, 12 through 19. I titled this, The Glory of Suffering. And that's really what this is. This passage is a tremendous Proclamation of glory and victory through suffering. Sounds a little gory almost. But it talks about, we see it here. I think I'll just read 12 through 16. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers, and that word is koinonia, fellowship, 
You took fellowship or part in Christ's suffering. Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Again, he's concerned don't, that this suffering is for well-doing and not for evil-doing. Not because of your unchristlikeness. We meet people that have this sob story of self-pity and how they were used by other people. But when you get to look into it, like uh, Clint said, they were cruising for a bruising. Verse 16, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of that. Let him glorify God on this behalf. So we see here, they're called to rejoice. In future, we see that suffering suffering brings glory in the future. Verse 13 says that when his glory shall be revealed... When his glory shall be revealed, when Christ comes in the full glory of his kingdom, and that's revealed, that you can rejoice. So there's glory for future if you suffer now, somehow. And I just wonder this morning, how will that be, young people? How would that be in the presence of God before the throne of Jesus when we're standing there and they say, here come the martyrs? And they come into the presence of the Almighty. And we get to watch. And I mean, yeah, we face some real hardships in life. I mean, yeah. Breakfast was just burned the other day. And I face some real uncomfortable and challenging things in life. How will our little lives look in the light of the suffering of the martyrs? When they enter into the presence of the Almighty, these men and women who gave their life, and they cast their crowns, and they fall on their faces and worship the Lord Jesus and give Him all the glory and the honor and the praise forever and ever. And we watch the martyrs do that. And we get to be identified with that host. Oh my, we feel unworthy. Will we hang our head in shame? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? No, I will fight, says, praise God. There's future glory for suffering. I don't understand that all, but that's what this passage is saying. There's present glory and blessing. It says in verse 14, if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy. And again, that's extremely blessed. You're extremely blessed. This is a privilege. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Oh my, we want that, don't we? We want the spirit of glory and of God to rest upon our life. Suffering. Suffering. Well, here's what Mark Felix said, an early Christian writing, an early Christian writer, about suffering. You think he's writing, I don't know who he's writing to, but he's writing to someone obviously that wasn't a Christian. You think we're being punished when we suffer hardships and infirmities, but it's not punishment. That's what this early Christian said. It's not punishment. It's warfare. Fortitude is strengthened by infirmities. And he quotes James 1.12. Fortitude is strengthened by infirmities. Virtue and suffering usually go hand in hand. Both the body and the mind grow sluggish without hard work. Think of all the mighty men you hold up as examples. He must be writing to a Roman or heathen or a Gentile or, an un- or whatever, someone that wasn't a Christian. 
Wasn't it their afflictions that made them great? God is not unable to aid us, as you have claimed, nor does he despise us. He loves his own people, and he is the ruler of all men. However, he tests us and searches us through adversities. He tests the qualities of all of us through trials, often even to death itself. He can test us to the point of death because he knows that nothing can perish to him. Just as gold is refined by the fire, so are we proven through times of crisis. Malachi Malachi 3.3. He goes on. It is a beautiful spectacle to God when a Christian battles pain. I don't understand that. All right? I'm not going to be able to sit down with you and explain all what's happening and why that is. This is what he says. It's a beautiful spectacle to God when a Christian battles pain or when he stands up to threats, punishment, and torture. When he mocks both the horrors of the executioner and the roar of the crowd screaming for his death. When he stands up to kings and princes as a free man yielding only to God to whom he belongs. And when he is triumphant and victorious, he tramples on the very man who pronounced his death sentence. For the one who obtains the prize for which he has contented, he is the conqueror. Wow. That's a rather glorified view of suffering. He says here, verse 16, If any man suffer, let him not be ashamed. And I wonder, was he remembering the night, the cock crowed? Was he remembering that? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Or was he thinking of the death he was called to die? Because Jesus told him there in John 21, I won't turn to it, But he told him that basically explained to him the death he would die, a martyr's death. Maybe he was thinking of that. Don't be ashamed. Amy Carmichael wrote this little poem. Most of you have read it. I'll just read it today. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Leaned me against the tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? Suffering. It's a rather victorious, conquering view of suffering, isn't it? What does the world do with that? What did those Romans do with that view? They didn't know what to do with it. They couldn't conquer that spirit. But think of this Christians would be huddled in a corner, scared and trembling and fearing. No. They conquered it. Beautiful picture. May God help us. First Peter five. Let's turn there. We wrap this up. Make a few. I'll give you my outline here and give you make a few comments. First Peter five verses one through fourteen, the true grace of God. Verses one through four, we see the ministers of grace. And here again, I'm just reminded of John twenty one, there. After Jesus' resurrection, 
And him and Peter are talking together there by the Sea of Galilee. Lovest thou me, Peter? Do you love me more than these? Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And his whole epistle is doing that. Both of them, both his epistles are doing that. He's endeavoring to feed the sheep of Jesus. That's a blessing. The true grace of God. Here we have ministers of grace. We see there are overseers of the flock. uh, I'm sorry, ministers are called to feed the flock. To feed the flock. To oversee the flock. And to be an example of the flock. And I'm not speaking to overseers this morning too much. We could. There's a lot in this passage. But I'm speaking to you as young people. How do you receive God's ministers of grace? What is your attitude towards the ministers and the authorities in your life? What feelings arise in your heart? What thoughts go through your mind when you think of those elders, those ministers, those deacons and those authorities in your congregation? What what do you think of when you think of those individuals? Can you say that you have a good, respectful relationship with them? Do you have a respectful, honoring relationship? I want to encourage you to have. I believe it will bring blessing into your life. I believe it will bring spiritual growth into your life if you have that relationship. Well, maybe when you think of them, you think of how they've disappointed you. I'm sorry if God's ministers have disappointed you. I'm sorry for that. I'm sure I have disappointed people as a minister. And I'm sorry for that. I pray about that. And I ask God for mercy and forgiveness. I don't do it intentionally. But I'm sure I have. Can you forgive them? Can you forgive them and receive them as God's ministers of grace to you? The Bible says this about these ministers of grace. It says that you should know them that labor among you and are over you and and admonish you. You should know them. You should have a relationship with them. And I'm sorry, some of us are not maybe the easiest to get close to. I, I feel that is my disposition sometimes. I'm trying to work on that. But it says you should know them. That means you should try to have a relationship with these authorities in your life. Sit down with them. Ask them questions. Oh, it's a blessing. It says that you should esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. Maybe you say, well, it's hard to love him. I'm probably hard to love. I'm sure I am in some areas of my life especially. I'm sure I can be hard to love. But the Bible says esteem him very high in love. And if you can't do it because he's hard to love... You can at least do it for his work's sake, his calling. God has called him. That's the direction here, how we should relate to these ministers of grace. It also says that you should follow their example. They are actually to be a pattern and example for you to follow. Do you follow them? If you, if you stand beside your elders and ministers, is there a big distinction between your life and their life. Is that good? Is that biblical? The Bible says we should follow them. Follow their example. Our example as ministers isn't always what it should be or could be. But the Bible says you should just try to fall in line with the direction they're setting and embrace it. Hebrews 13 says this is another way that we should relate to, the, our, to these ministers of grace says you should obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. I'm not going to comment or elaborate on those points, but we're here this week and we want blessings. We want to grow. We want to mature. We want to grow into Christ-likeness. Right? This is important. Very important. Very important. And finally, the Bible says many times, you should pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for, pray for us. I'm so blessed to pray with the people in our congregation. 
and to know that they pray for me. Spurgeon once said, when he was, he was, had an outstanding ministry, we're not going to talk about that, but different people would comment on his ministry. And he would say this, he would say, my people pray for me. <laughs> Amen. All right, ministers of grace. First Peter 5, verses 5 through 7, we see the spirit of grace. This grace, I struggled with this little title, and I'm sure someone could come up with a better one. I'm sure John D. would have a much better one. I'm so blessed with his, his uh, titles. But anyway, the spirit of grace. The challenge here is, it talks about the spirit of Christ-likeness, but it also says that this is how we get more grace. So it's important this, that we submit, be subject. That means to put yourself under. Ouch. <laughs> ah. That's challenging. This means put yourself under. All right? That's the picture. Be clothed with humility. Humble yourself. And in verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That's to live in dependence upon God's goodness and to surrender all to him. And by the way, that is true humility. Verse 7 could actually be an example or, the, or, a, a, or a, this is humility. The humble individual is able to trust God and believe God and lay his burdens there. It's our pride that takes things to ourself and tries to work it out and fret and worry and be anxious and all that. That's our pride. We're not resting and trusting God. But we want to grow in grace and godliness. This is the path. I think of hinds feet in high places. That's a beautiful, um, I can't think of the word I want, allegory, right? Think of the water song in there. The water saying, lower, lower, lower. That's the picture of the water. The water just rushes to fill the lowest place. That's how God's grace is. God's grace is just looking to fill that lowest place. Be that low place. Submit yourself. Put yourself under and humble yourself. And the grace will come. We We are tempted to look at spiritual growth... In godliness, like a ladder that we're climbing up, it's actually down. That's where the grace of God is. Verses 8 and 9, we see the enemy of grace. We, our adversary, the devil, a roaring lion. And the way he was roaring in this time was through persecution and suffering. Persecution and suffering. That's a loud roar. We could talk about that. We're not going to, but that's how he was roaring. Our response to that enemy of grace is to be sober, be careful, be vigilant, be awake and alert, and resist him steadfast in the faith. No longer, we don't face quite the same roaring today, I don't think. He's still the same roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, but it's He comes more as an angel of light, maybe. It's the same enemy. And I think of that Martyr's Mere quote, and I don't have time to read it in the introduction, but he just says, this was in 1660, these are sad times in which we live. Nay, truly, there there is more danger now than in the time of our fathers who suffered death for the testimony of the Lord. More dangerous now than then. This was 1660. A paragraph down, these times are certainly more dangerous. For then Satan came openly through his servants, even at noonday as a roaring lion. But now he comes as an angel of light. More dangerous. Be sober. Be vigilant. Resist him steadfast in the faith. We've heard a lot of good teaching this week. Let's take it to heart and do something. I think of the story given of uh, someone who was there told me this. In 1982, Francis Schaeffer was preaching at Moody Church in Chicago. And this was, he passed away soon after that. He must have, because I think he passed away sometime in the early 80s there. And toward the end of his life, he wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster. And the way I understand it, when he was at Moody preaching, he was preaching some of his burden for the evangelicals. And he poured out his heart in that sermon. He He poured out his heart to those people and he pled with them and preached to them that night. And they could tell he had a tremendous burden. And when it was finished, he walked over, took his seat, and they all stood and started clapping. 
It wasn't the response he wanted. But they clapped and clapped until he came back up to say something else. They wanted him to come back and say something else. So he gets back up, and he stands behind the pulpit, and they all get quiet. And he leans forward, and he says, do something. And he sat down. Do something. First Peter 5, 10 and 11. The God of all grace. This is a beautiful verse. Let's read verse 10 and 11. But the God of all grace, who hath called you unto his eternal glory through Jesus Christ, after that ye have suffered a while, after you've suffered a while, make you perfect. Perfection's the goal, right? Perfection is God's goal. We're predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the goal God has for us, perfection. He's going to take us there if we stay faithful. Praise God. He will take us all the way. Hallelujah. Make you perfect. Establish, which means to fix, to make steadfast. It's the same word that Jesus used in Luke 22, verse 32, when He says, About Peter, I have prayed for you, Peter, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Strengthen there is the same word here where it says establish. To be established. And he's trying to do that. Peter's trying to do that. He's writing him a letter here. Strengthen and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Praise God, the God of all grace. We heard about that this morning, so beautiful. He will pour that grace into our life. If we can humble ourselves and walk before him in obedience, he will make your life beautiful. Hallelujah. And we end then, verses 12 through 14 is the salutation of grace. And he says there in verse 12 that uh, I have written briefly exhorting and testifying that this, 1 Peter, this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. God bless you. Peace be with you. May you go and grow in the grace and the knowledge and the blessing and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Thank you for your attention and for your prayers. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, Lord. You are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. And we just bow before you. Take our little feeble lives. Fill us with your grace, your spirit, and your love. And use us to glorify your name. Amen.